Hello. Uh, welcome to... What? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to introduce the uh, the season finale, i.e. the questions episode, of the first series of Little Grey Cells. Were you? Well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yes, after several full starts. Yes, I was. Thank you. Okay, I wasn't sure which one of those this was. <laughs> oh, do you want me to start again? Nope, we're rolling now, Pip. <laughs> Oh, that, that's who you are uh, yes and you chris i'm chris <laughs> what an intro what a finale we could go again but you said no <laughs> well do you want to yeah <laughs> hello and welcome to the season finale questions episode of the first series of little gray cells i am your host philippa war pip <laughs> That's me! <laughs> and you are? Uh, Christopher Thurston. Chris. Me. <laughs> and you, the audience. Hello! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> and this is your space for you to think your name really loudly. <laughs> Good. <laughs> sorry, I laughed during it. That was no disrespect. I wasn't laughing at it your was. name as you thought. It was. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Chris, um, you have the questions near you. I could try and read them from here, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and shan't. So, yes, I have the, the way we've been sent, uh, quite a lot of questions and comments over the course of the first season. So these, some of these, uh, were sent quite a while ago. I wanted to start with Jacob, who actually wrote in, not with a particular question initially, but I think he was the first person who wrote in to suggest that we did a questions episode at the end oh. and listed the sorts of questions people might ask, which is functionally the same as asking a question. But does it mean that he wants an answer or well, is he just thought, a demonstration <laughs> of how the format... I don't know. I imagine he's not going to be offended to receive an answer to one of his questions. Okay. So the question I picked out of the list was this. If Jap was a flavour of crisps... What flavour would he be? I wanted to start with something that really got into the beef. the savoury meat of beef. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to say Poirot. No. Mm, yeah, I... Poirot I'm, doesn't begin with beef. I, yes, some heavily savoury, meaty, crinkle cut. He'd be, no, no, McCoy. beef hula hoops. <laughs> You're completely correct. Like little handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if for those of you who live in places that are not the UK... Beef hula hoops are um, a type of hula hoop, which you probably need explained to you as well. So imagine, <laughs> imagine if you will, a... Potato crisp. A potato crisp that is <laughs> a spherical tube. It's not a spherical tube. No, you're right. It's a cylindrical tube. tube. <laughs> a tube. Oh, God. Maybe here like, all night. They're like rings that you wear on your fingers, except extended into tubes. Because you know what a tube is. <laughs> it's a potato tube, all right. Yes. And um, when you are about six or seven, you uh, stop being able to fit them entirely onto your fingers and have to start just sort of like poking at them with your... Yes, you learn the very specific discomfort of having worn a hula hoop for too long mm. as its extremely salty exterior starts to dig it into your skin. It used to just be original flavour, which was ready salted. Yeah. But now they've gone places. You can get salt and vinegar. Did you know? You've been able to get salt and vinegar hula hoops for as long as I've been alive, I'm pretty sure. That's because you're younger than me. I remember. <laughs> I remember, young man, the days before all so, these fancy hula hoops. <laughs> nonetheless, I think you're spot on with mm. Jap, the Thanks. beef hula hoop man. 
Yes. I think you're completely right. I went to a kind of, I was thinking a thick McCoy's, uh, mm. crinkle cut crisp kind of direction, but actually, um, I think the beef hula hoop gets closer to Jap's salt of the earth every They're man quite appeal. Compact. They are compact. Think of, um, the, the way that Pringles are basically reformed from potato dust. Yes. And these are sort of that, but like a lot more intensely so it's it's almost like the diamond to the pringle charcoal yes yes indeed they're very dense if you had to throw out one other because i appreciate that we've got like 1700 questions okay yes Um, but if you had to throw out one other uh paro character crisp combo um uh, what would you go for i think i know what mine would be oh hmm mine and you can disagree with this uh would be miss lemon I was also thinking of Miss Lemon. So I was going to think of uh, Walker's Thai chili sensations. Why would it not be a salt and shake? Well, because I I see this as a fancier crisp, quite sweet. I think Poirot would be an ostentatiously fancy crisp, though. Yes. I think he would be either that or one of those gourmet crisps. I think Hastings would be something like Tyrrell's Dorset Cheddar. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that Miss Lemon would be a salt and shake. Okay. Which is, to clarify, Americans. um, They are uh, potato chips, but they are plain, completely without adornment, except a small blue sachet. A mystery, you might think. What does it contain? Salt. It's salt. What about, I don't get that with Miss Lemon, actually. I don't get why she's like that or why she would be like that. Because I think that she would appreciate- Do you not think she has flavoured out of the bag? No, no. I think that she would very much appreciate the granular level of control afforded by the uh, the salt. See, that strikes me as very Poirot-y. I think he would, no, I think he would hate the mess of crisps in general. You're quite right. Yes. (laughs) I I think that he would be, uh, if- if he potato had to be a, if, yes if he had to be a potato chip of of some kind then that's why i would have said he was like one of the gourmet ones mm. but i i think i'm inclined to say he he is not a crisp maybe uh in that case following that kind of logic hastings would just be an earnestly and well-meaningly presented yet whole potato well he would be yeah (laughs) a jacket potato exactly like i'm trying um bless him yeah um right that's question one sorted thanks jacob um so uh we're gonna have a couple on a theme because we do have a couple on a theme so is the theme poirot yes i was prepared for this okay good (laughs) Uh, Mike writes, Dear Kane and Coattails, until the last segment on the latest episode of Little Grey Cells, I have no idea which one this was, this was sent ages ago, um, I was also going to write in your thoughts on the new murder in the Orient Express film. As it seems you don't intend to see it, I thought I'd share my views instead as a long-time Poirot fan. I did not go and see it, but you I, did. Chris. I have seen it. I saw it on a plane. So so Chris could theoretically offer a response, yes. but let's see. Let's see. So he, uh, Mike goes on to say, to be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by the whole experience, especially after the trailers tried to make it look like an action movie and that travesty of moustache. It was great to see they were actually taking it seriously, putting appearances aside, as really David Suchet is the only person I can picture when I think of Pyro. I think they managed to capture the character pretty well, including lots of nods to his little quirks. They did rather ruin it a bit by including some of our ran- some random scenes of rough stuff, as Jap would put it. If anything, its main fault was that it was perhaps too faithful to the original story. So you 
effectively watching something you would have seen probably multiple times before, but with different actors. Might have been a bit more interesting if they tried to put their own spin on it. Not So not damning by any means, but you probably won't be too put out if you give it a miss. On the plus side, you do get to see Johnny Depp stabbed repeatedly. Thanks for great the great pods as ever, Mike. Uh, I also wanted to, so I'm going to get to that in a minute, but I also wanted to give a shout out to Rory in Dublin, who asked basically the same thing. Okay. You know, how, what do you think about Merge on the Orient Express? Uh, and, uh, Stephen, who also wrote in to write a slightly different take, which is, uh, loving the new podcast and the excuse to rewatch Pyro from the beginning. The last time I watched the series, I was also watching the other Clive Exton helmed interwar period adaptation, Jeeves and Wooster. I would often zone out and find myself wondering why there wasn't a murder for Jeeves to solve. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Pyro's apparent lack of concern about going into public toilets in the last episode, which would be a reference to. Oh, that would be the one where, um, the brothers, the, the, yes, it's, and the, the restaurant. Yeah. I've forgotten the exact name of the, episode yeah i mean i'm not going to remember anything this is going to be a running problem with the questions ago. but yes but yeah <laughs> it's the one with the twin brothers one of them disguised power goes into the public toilet where one of them shed that disguise something about terrible uh oh, oh yes let's not try and guess but nonetheless that one uh, you mentioned Pyro's apparent lack of concern about going into the public toilets in the last episode. Something I got from Kenneth Branagh's interpretation of the character is he's not really germophobic. He just wants everything to be balanced and correct. He even steps in something nasty in the street and proceeds to step in it again with his other foot to maintain balance. That's in the opening mm. act of the Murder or Express film. On the subject of Branagh's film, I enjoyed it a lot. However, I, I'm going to butcher a pronunciation here. Um, I live not far from Vinkovsky and there is a distinct lack of snowy mountains around here. <laughs> uh, this is uh, thanks for reading everybody steve so this is a uh a reference to the moment where the orient, orient express gets snowed in in the film which it, a sequence in which it looks eerily like a kind of uh disney intro magic train mm. um but yeah i appreciate that because we haven't both seen the movie there's not loads of fertile ground for i've seen films you have seen some helps. films yeah i um, know who kenneth branner is by sight i could identify <laughs> him if there was a lineup <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I did see it and actually I, I, I was more, I did enjoy it more than I expected to. However, I agree that like, I couldn't quite shake the un, uncanny Paro Valley effect. Mm. Um, I think it, it strikes me as sort of one thing I appreciate about the TV show is the TV show is sort of quite sweet, really. I think that's one of the reasons we enjoy it so much. And one of the reasons it's, this has been a fun series to record. It's ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's funny with how, especially given relative to modern TV and modern sensibilities, the TV show, particularly these early seasons, feels very sort of small and sweet and kind of the stakes are always quite low. Like, you know what I mean? Even when people get murdered and obviously that's, that's a big deal. But even when that's happening, you know, it's all sort of kind of quite jolly and Pyro, Pyro is not like, at this point, certainly, like these, yeah. these early episodes, whether, you know, quite short, they're often sort of based on the books and then as in based on short stories and fleshed out rather than, you know, longer things that might need to be cut down. So they sort of tend to, to have that sort of friendly local villagey uh, and also friend, uh, collective, uh, you know, like Jap and, and, Poirot yeah, and yeah. Hastings kind of have very specific relationships that are relatively light-hearted and lend themselves to, you know, the odd little look or the, you know, that yes. kind of stuff. 
whereas the movie uh, actually does have humor in it it does have jokes but the whole thing tends to be a little bit edgier it's a lot closer to a kind of modern detective show sensibility in terms of like um tortured eccentric great man versus cast of actors um it's it's vastly superior to something like uh the bbc new sherlock stuff for Mm. example um, but it has some similar kind of ideas. Like it really relishes, it relishes the kind of imagery of Poro in the way that like, uh, uh, TV, traditional Suchet Poro does not. I would suggest that the book itself, as in the, um, the story that they are specifically telling is part of not exactly the problem, but it only goes so far mm. towards, you know, a, a, a more, um, or, or a less, uh, thrillery, um, uh, more jovial uh, uh, undertaking, right? Yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is they, they lean into that even further, if that makes sense, right? Mm. Like the, we'll get to it eventually, but like the David Suchet murder on the Orient Express, obviously murder on the Orient Express is always going to be a thriller of some sort. Mm. But I think the thing that I, I enjoyed about the film, but also found sort of, difficult to reconcile with what I enjoy about TV Poirot is the fact that it goes so far in the other direction, like really leans into big cinematic images, which makes sense. It's cinema, but like, you know, the, practically the, the, the final, I mean, you can't really spoil uh, murder on the Orient Express for people, but like the scene that precedes Poirot, uh, confronting all of the suspects to outline his, uh, final sort of thing is Poirot kind of wounded from a gunshot, um, kind of cape billowing in the blizzard, kind of emerging from the snow in front of the, um, Orient Express itself, gun in hand, kind of silhouetted against it in a kind of almost superheroic image. He's practically wearing a cape mm. and that sort of thing, um, gets away from what I enjoy about the, uh, a lot of what I enjoy about a lot of Agatha Christie more generally, actually, even though she's capable of writing big dramatic stories, so much of the best moments in her stuff for me are like, the small kind of banalities of life or the pettiness of Paro mm. sometimes. Um, and it does give him opportunities to be petty, but it also gives him opportunities to be like tremendously grand. There's nothing like pixie-ish about him. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how you feel about um, the gradual increases in things like budget and episode length and the stories that they are left to tell. Mm. Um, because there is, there are mood shifts over the, the time of these stories unfolding and, you know, things like, um, whether the supporting cast are, you know, remaining at particular points. Um, they, they very much change who Poirot is and the, the mood of the stories because, you know, because of whether they are there to add that levity or to bring out other sides of Poirot or whether he is sort of um, left to sort of, um, you know, get a bit more into himself or, you know. Um, yeah. And he changes as he ages as well. That's true. I have seen enough episodes of Later Poirot to know what you mean. Um, but I'd be interested as part of like a considered long-term Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what it might be like to watch that movie again mm. without the most recent frame of reference being 
kind of laugh a minute. Lads, 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 lads in the car. Yeah, early pyro. <laughs> I think also, um, I think almost actually, in addition to the fact that it doesn't change anything about the story and because it's such a famous mystery, there's going to be, you know, maybe some people go in not knowing anything. That's great. But it is a very famous solution. So that, what they, what it almost substitutes that, what it, it almost substitutes mystery for kind of, um, ensemble kind of, uh, force. So every, you know, there's so many actorly performances in that. You have some very Judy Dench. You have some very Willem Dafoe. Well, I was wondering whether it was a kind of almost like a test case. So Murder on the Orient Express is probably the one that should you put on a, uh, a Poirot adaptation, you know, for casting and for, green lighting and for you know funding and things um i would say you know it's 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 the headline poirot right it's the one that is possibly the easiest to convince people that other people will be interested in right and so i wondered whether it was going to be a case of you know kenneth branner seeing whether you know almost like dipping his toe in the water to see whether his poirot would have that longevity and whether there was a series of films in it or a franchise of films in it. That's worth saying it completely ends on franchise this, please. Basically. Mm. Um, so, okay. Minus boys, skip ahead 30 seconds. You won't care about this. The last scene of the film is Pyro leaving the train, getting picked up by a British officer, colonial officer who says, are you Mr. Pyro? He says, yes. He says, got to come with me, sir. There's been a murder on the Nile. Oh, for- And so if this does become a a Marvel Cinematic Universe style, you know, 20 film series, I really want to get to the bit where they're really straining to get the name of the next thing in the end of the previous one. (laughs) Like... Because Poirot himself in, in the Touche one sometimes does this. He's yeah. like, oh, I'm off for a holiday, you know, on the Nile or in Mesopotamia or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Wink. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's not immune to that itself. But, you know, I think that as a, a series, you're probably, you know, that's that feels like less of a kind of call to to marketing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, in, in that you better come way. with me, sir. What is it? Yeah, it's three little blackbirds. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yes i mean fine that's that's that um i'm interested to see what you made of it pep if you ever do choose to watch it maybe when it's on netflix or something we could i'll see what's what i at at the moment i just really yeah it, it, it doesn't interest me i understand your reasons for um i will say that one of the most enjoyable things that i remember about uh, Murder on the Orient Express is rereading it once when I was on a train and the train itself was, um, it was a really snowy, uh, week in the UK. And mm. so every time I looked out of the window, I, it felt right, you know? Yeah. And so there was just this, and, and it was going quite slowly because obviously it was, it, it wasn't a stopped train by any means um but it was just that sense of you know things going slowly and and me having time to read this reread this murder mystery and and have it feel exactly right every time i looked up mm, that's cool that's really probably cool. better than this kenneth Brenner <laughs> movie experience mm. but yeah so hopefully that has answered mm-hmm. and also it was nice to get other people's perspectives as well our next question comes from a loyal fan who writes 
In America, the police have special cards they sometimes give out that let friends and family members duck out on minor, minor traffic violations and the like. I didn't realize that was a thing, but what? yeah, apparently. What kind of crimes do you suppose Hastings uses his friendship with Paro to not get punished for, if any? Sincerely, I feel a like loyal they fan. might have mistaken Monopoly's get out of jail free cards for like a real police thing. Well, unless. I have not known, uh, uh, to be fair, I don't know any people in the American police force. So, <laughs> so to the, yes, yeah, so the question which is what, if, if Hastings could use his connection to Poirot to get out of minor indiscretions, what would those indiscretions be? They would either be something like, oh, sorry, I was just holding this massive pack of heroin and an illegal iguana for a friend i don't know what happened to them and tried to board the plane to see where they were Mm. please don't arrest me yeah or speeding speeding is the obvious one (laughs) um impersonating a monaco gp driver or a le mans driver whichever he was invited (laughs) (laughs) he He says (laughs) invited but i really i feel like Hastings is very much the the sort of person that would fall victim to you know a pyramid scheme or yeah. some kind of you know scam. He would not be safe on the internet. Put no. it that way. He like would believe he would. every email he received. Yes, it's like, did you know? No, you haven't. You haven't won this lottery. You haven't you know inherited a fortune. You do not own this thing. <laughs> like, this please be- don't send your passport details. Are you projecting a little hit bit here by any chance? <laughs> no, but I but I would say that I think that those are the sorts of things and yes. the the whatever the the version of it from the the twenties would have been. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Terrible, right. bad investments that turned out to be criminal things. It would be like, yeah, he accidentally gets in with British fascists or something in 1938 because he th- he thinks, oh, they're awfully nice, really. And then Poirot has to talk him out of it. Something like that, you know what I mean? Or, you know, yeah, accidentally smuggling something because a friend asked him to bring it back to their mother or something. Yeah, yes. And it was, it turns out it's not a friend. It's just some nice man, terribly nice man who apparently said that he went to the right school, you know, that they met in the pub and it, it all seemed very much yes. above board. It would be, it would be lending someone a gun that subsequently got used to kill somebody. <laughs> I say. <laughs> I didn't think they could do that. <laughs> yes. But he seemed so nice. <laughs> yeah. Though, yes, that's Went good. to Eton. <laughs> like, oh, Hastings. Oh, bless him. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe like, you know, some sort of accidental sort of money laundering or something like that. Just, you know, looking after some money for somebody. Yeah. Or buying a thing that he, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next comes from Revolver Rossalot, who writes to the little policeman in my head. One of the refrains of the Poirot cast so far has been highlighting elements that prefigure the tropes and conventions that will eventually become staples of the show. Given that, are there any adaptations from the first series that you would like to have seen tackled by a more mature production team? Cheers, Revolver Rossalot. By more mature, more mature, he means like not like fewer dick jokes or anything. I think he means specifically <laughs> like, you know. As in anything would like a do-over. With yeah, if, if the, you go back yeah. with the experience they had late in later seasons. In a weird way, no, because the first series is so weird at points and so yeah. over the top. And like, 
and this continues for another couple of seasons, you just get things that are just really overly TV daytime soapy or, you know, you, you get really weird performances or, you know, decisions to suddenly go down the route of and so-and-so had a dream or, yeah. you know, that kind of thing that, that are kind of, I wouldn't want to lose them, you know? Um, I think that there are some things that make absolutely no sense that I would like to have seen maybe... <sighs> It's hard, isn't it? Because cause they're still endearing for their for their weirdnesses or their sort of lack of... I, I think in some ways I would like to see, or I would like to at least know what the first season would look like with later script writers, you know? So sort of maybe people with more of that eye towards plot holes or, yeah. you know, when to... So this is a tricky thing because the later seasons have the advantage of having much longer episodes. So, so I think it's like Anthony Horowitz and people like that, mm, isn't it? Because so many of my problems with early Poirot, the stuff that, I mean, I, there's, no, there's not been a single episode that I haven't enjoyed in some way, but there's been, you know, the thing I really miss, and I've mentioned this, I think, or before, but like, I, I, the way they choose to make use of the 45 minutes they have or the hour they have for these episodes, um, maybe their hands are tied on some things because they've got a lot of story to get through in a short space of time, but what they almost never leave time for is doubt as to who done it. They're not very good whodunits, these early episodes, because basically they never dwell on side characters. They never go dig into red herrings for too long. They tend more towards like how done it or why yeah. done it, right? And so it's a march towards, and whereas, um, and a lot of TV length sort of 45 minute detective shows still have this issue. Mm. It is hard to have a big cast of characters who all could have equally done it in 45 minutes. Yeah. But, um, and so it's not necessarily that it's hard to say that that production team didn't want to do that rather than somebody who didn't have the time to do it. But, um, I think the, the thing I'm looking forward to is that later Poirot, I feel like, cause we're going to, we're not going to have the time to go in scene by scene for later episodes, but we can talk a lot more about different threads. Yeah. You know, we're going to get to a point where there are plot lines that. <laughs> It multiple aren't all <laughs> just the the critical path of the story mm. i'm really looking forward to that yeah i think that would be interesting i think i it's again it's odd because i don't really quite know what i would want from this stuff i think i think productions in general in recent years have approach the idea of what you bring with you, what you discard and what you interrogate or reposition in terms of things that are of its time as in racist or colonial colonialist or, you know, mm. uh, in other ways, problematic, uh, dialogue that, you know, I, so I, I feel like this, um, especially this first season was, of a time that had not had as much of those, as many of those conversations or had sort of tried to figure out different ways of approaching, updating or, or filming things that yeah. had such clangers like right in the middle of them that disrupt the flow nowadays. Mm. So I, I think I would like to see what people would do 
with those elements now, sort of having had another 20, 30 years of those conversations to to figure that out, right? Mm. Yes, totally. Hmm, cool. So our next question is actually a statement, which comes, uh, a story, which comes from Robert. He writes, hi, and I have a question. I just thought I'd share a story my dad's friend told me. He was a Navy officer stationed for training on the River Dart was having lunch at a cafe. Him and his fellows saw an older lady having tea alone in the corner, so they invited her over, bought her lunch and a cake, and found her a charming and interesting woman. It was only when she left and they asked a waitress who she was that they found they'd treated Agatha Christie to a free lunch. <laughs> anyway, thank you for the pods. They've become a strangely tranquil way to spend an hour every week or so. That's from Robert. Aww. I like that because that is so much how Miss Marple ends up involved in mysteries. So that's off the paro thing a lot, but it is like, what a nice little old lady. Let's invite her to have lunch. She's definitely not going to figure out that I murdered my brother and you know, <laughs> fed him to dogs or something. We are not accusing Robert's dad of Or uncle crimes. or friends. No, not at all. I'm just saying he's lucky that he wasn't a criminal. Um, yeah, presumably. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, next is Simon, who writes, uh, Dear Little Grey Cells spin-off, uh, loving the Poirot-based podcasting, it's been a glorious thing indeed, was thinking about the concept of detective vision that you get in a lot of video games and wondering what you imagine Poirot's detective vision would look like from his perspective. Many thanks, Simon. Mm. I think it would just be, like, a lot of, uh, like, reviews of things around him like it was nothing, <laughs> nothing really to do with his like the detection of the crime so much so much as like the quality of everything nearby like that person's tie does not look right that's that's a bad flambe you know this this is unacceptable and so on <laughs> like yelp reviews but for like every single noun <laughs> in range i like the idea that you know you would have your your regular you know, I don't know, BBC Sherlock detective vision, but also like, you know, that candlestick doesn't match this one and that's really annoying. Or, yes, you know, yeah, like yeah. those things would be flagged up as equally important or pressing concerns, I guess. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Because obviously the stuff that is used in video games to, um, to exemplify how that might work is is all I can really think of, but also makes absolutely no, um, bears no resemblance to how I solve problems or mm. anything. Obviously I don't solve mysteries, but, um, like at university I did, um, some people would know this from the main podcast, but I, uh, did a code breaking module and stuff like that. So there were, you know, moments of, um, you know, those eureka moments after having like written, a thing down on a piece of paper a million times in slightly different ways, just bashing your head against it to make it work. Right. And Poirot sort of, he obviously he doesn't do that. It's not like he sort of scribbles things down. He just sort of takes it all in, but you know, there have been times definitely in this series where he's had to sit with a thing waiting for it to come into focus and not being able to sort of, Mm. make progress beyond it until that happens. And it implies that there's a certain amount of, you know, connections building and stuff, but the way that it plays out is it, it does resist that, that video game representation of, you know, 
building those connections and trying yeah, one thing unless, against each other. Unless or... you perceive of the little grey cells as a kind of like super bar that fills up over the course of the mystery until he performs his ultimate. Or maybe a point and click room. where you just sort of reach that point where you can't go any further and then you finally just try everything against everything else and something works. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they carefully edit the drawing room scenes to get, just get the bits where Pyro is right rather than every, cause he tries every single <laughs> combination of possibilities on every single assembled member of 30s it's British weird, society. Though, like, I do wonder whether it would be more akin to, um, seeing just a slightly different version of a scene rather than seeing more information. It's things like, you know, he can, from the things that people say and how they say them or, you know, the, the, the way that events line up or don't, um, you know, I guess in one, in, in Hastings's version of the scene, everything is exactly as it looks, right? Yeah. You know, he, he can just sort of see the scene exactly as it is being presented to him and believes all of those things. Whereas Poirot, I don't know, maybe he would look at the same scene, but you know, the two people who are glaring at each other in Hastings's vision are like holding hands because Poirot's figured out that they're, you know, doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder if it would be interesting because, um, because as we were saying, you know, ITV Poirot is very homely. You know, everyone sort of, even, even when it's strangers, it's sort of, like Poirot's an outsider, but it's the sort of a, a commonality of class a lot of the time. Mm. Um, he'll often get asked to stay over or yeah, yeah, be a exactly. guest or, you know, they'll invite him to dinner and he'll sort of, you know. Yeah, maybe a sort of interpretation of it where Poirot is more of an outsider and is presented in a way and, and where Poirot is presented obviously as the focal character and, and the lead character, but the way that the British aristocracy is presented is more, is, you know, it's less sort of homely and relatable. The characters are more kind of strange and hostile to each other and more kind of bound up in a sort of rituals of class and eminence and blood and relationships and, and all the rest of it and money in, in a way that makes that more explicit. So he is more obviously uh, a sort of uh, a kind of um, prescient or perceptive stranger in a strange land rather than a kind of sort of um, kind of uh, amiable Belgian crime node. It's weird because Poirot and um, Miss Marple both have that thing of being underestimated. Poirot because yeah. he's a a foreigner with a you know with um, slightly strange uh, habits or you know um, oh what are they called you know personal tics uh, 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 foibles yeah things like that um, I can't think of the word um, um, Miss Marple because she is an elderly lady who knits and listens and gossips and they are both consistently underestimated um and but it's interesting because uh when agatha christie is kind of sometimes talking about you know the the method i guess of solving stuff um often i the ones that i remember when she's sort of having one of the characters explain that that instead of you know, interrogating people's, um, recollections individually, you sort of take them as a whole and figure out the one that doesn't fit. 
or the one that if you take it out or, you know, one mm. element of it just isn't, the, the rest of it all makes sense. And it's that one that's throwing it off. So that's where you have to focus. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting. So I'm not sure how you'd represent that, but it's, that's a thing that I, I know that she has specifically mm. outlined in some fashion. Right. Hmm. Next question comes from Jimmy, who writes, Hi, Pip and Chris. First of all, thanks for producing such an affectionate, thoughtful and funny podcast about my favorite Belgian detective. I don't know any other Belgian detectives, but still, you made me laugh out loud several times, most notably Double Jeopardy and <laughs> Pork Knox. I wonder if um, Tintin counts as a Belgian detective. I, um, somewhat, yeah. He's a boy detective, I think right? he's sort of multi-classes. He has whatever, whatever sort he's of... a journalist. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway. Yes, lamentable profession. Uh, anyway, here are my questions, right, Jimmy? What has been the episode you've enjoyed the most in season one? And what is the smartest mystery of the season? These aren't necessarily the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Jimmy. So I will go for problem at sea for my most enjoyable episode of the season. It's so full of great moments, including the best ac- extra, uh, the best line, which is, I feel so alive. Um, and that idiotic denouement and the weird doll. <laughs> it's yeah, like it's you know, tri- Triangle Roads, which it follows. Um, it has the best ending. Mm. Um, for the line, bloody Belgian busybody. The fact that someone tries to throw dynamite at Poirot, but they're saved by a fabulous policeman. <laughs> That's great, but problem at sea is more consistently great over the course of its run. Mm. Hastings on a camel. Mm. Um, Hastings desperately trying to get people to give a sh- about clay pigeon shooting or whatever it is. The major who just r- runs around. Uh, the bubbliest ladies and the man who really doesn't want to admit that he was in vaudeville. Like, there's so much going on in that episode. <laughs> Best mystery? I don't know. What's your answer for either of these? Um, goodness. I, I think that there, I, I really like the, absolute sort of parade of uh you know ghastly women <laughs> you know yeah I, i'm a big fan of you know the lady in silver lame who turns up at that party and and turns out to be a spy right yeah you know or a, at least a nazi sympathizer right yeah um obviously i'm not applauding her on that front it really is just a fashion thing and the fact that she is a terrible you know she's she is the series is sort of very there's an archetype of a you know a brash american yeah that that the english aristocracy tend to sort of but do you not think that uh, i'm not going to just completely go to bat for problem at sea here but do you not think that uh the murder victim i've forgotten her name in problem at sea Mm. the lady who um yeah you know, do you not think that she has that category tied down herself? Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. Like, I, but I, I think her and, um, what's her chops? The American ladies. Yeah. You know, that I, I think it's just, there are so many moments like that. And I really loved the absolute nonsense of Triangle at Rhodes. And I kind of like really, in a weird way, absolutely loved the, the episodes that made no sense. You know, the yeah. ones where it was like, oh, um, so it's, it, I really, I'm, I wish I was better at remembering names at the drop of a hat, but I, I'm not. Um, you know, the, the, the one that the American lady is in and it turns out to be a kind of, you know, an air, um, you know, the, the airplane yes. plans get, 
stolen but it turns out that you know blah 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 and and then you're just like uh, okay so the man was doing the thing that you decided was a sort of treasonous offence in the first place so it just makes absolutely no more sense at the end than it did at the beginning (laughs) like so I kind of I have a real fondness for those Mm. Um, in terms of the best mystery I think that the um so the the disguise element really mucks it up but the dream actually has so the the one where yeah. um, the the rich guy purportedly has this dream that he you know dies at a very specific yeah, point the, in the time you know pork tyrant purported suicide fiasco basically but you know the actual bones of it that was you know the 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 fact that a scenario a relatively complicated thing with moving parts has been set up and yeah you know it 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 needs a particular thing to happen and you know there's 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 actually something to puzzle over right you know the direction that someone's yeah. looking and why they go to the window at particular times and how they know a thing and how they you know i feel like there's a quite a lot of that this season where the actual bones of the mystery are good but the tv show doesn't necessarily like stumbled over actually the very first episode um with the uh the sort of like the letter to the lady the the help that was sent out to live in the woods and hastings in the field and and that stuff it all falls apart because of the hilarious disguise issue <laughs> but yeah i actually yeah i find i find favorite mystery harder to pin down this season to be honest but I think because they they were often more about how it was done, mm. you know? So it wasn't really a case of the mystery being the mystery of who the perpetrator was. It was very much more about, you know, which elements of the mystery that remained yeah. were um of interest or were were sort of pleasurable in the in the um in the sense of a viewer puzzling over something. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, figuring out some things and not others and then, you know, having a pleasure in how it all fitted together rather than sort of just consuming it. Yeah. Is it Murder in the Muse, the one that, is that the one where the, it's the, the two women who live together and they catch up throwing golf clubs into this, into the pond? Oh, n- uh. The smoking in the, room i'm really sorry we should have had the episode names in front of us no no it's the one where the sound of the gunshot is covered by fireworks at the start the one that begins with like hastings oh, going like is... jolly good night to murder somebody or something yeah maybe that is murder i i really i we do you want to just quickly sorry audience do you want to just quickly bring up like a list of the things um just so that we can more reliably <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise this is going to get super annoying for people. <laughs> I wish my memory was better and it just isn't. I am thinking of Murder and the Muse. Oh, okay, cool. Yes, that's the one I'm talking about when the lady is ported to have shot herself on Guy Fawkes Night. I think that's a solid mystery. Mm. I mean, it comes down to sort of traditional detective stuff like the smoking and the, the cigarette ash and things like that. Yeah. So maybe that would be my answer to this. 
That's true. I'd completely forgotten about that and had then conflated it with something else. See, this is one of the things, just slightly off topic, that Chris and I very much differ on is that I can rewatch murder mysteries endlessly because of how appalling my memory is. Because, like, even if I, if it's stuff that I know the answer to ultimately, it only comes back to me in dribs and drabs, right? Mm. It's very rare that I actually sort of have remembered the whole thing. So I can happily sit... I, give me another week and I could rewatch season one and still be surprised. <laughs> it's a gift, honestly. You really enjoy detective shows over and over again. I'm rewatching Elementary now. I'm yeah. still surprised. It's like stuff just sticks in my brain. Like a <laughs> bottomless sort of space in my mind for nonsense, fantasy, law, facts and science Crimes. fiction and crime and crime apparently. Um, <laughs> but not for more essential things apparently. But nonetheless, you know, that's all. Yeah, but yeah. that's why I'm going to just apologise up front for even though being the one that will talk about Poirot ad nauseum, will still not reliably know what happens. <laughs> Next question, I'm going to, again, murder and pronunciation here comes from uh, Velike, who writes, Hi, Detective Discusses. First thing to say is thank you very much for introducing me to this show. I had some of the ambient Poirot exposure mentioned in the first episode, but I never would have thought to have watched all, watched through all these early episodes and they're great fun, especially watching them along at the podcast. Now for the question. What other detective shows do you watch or what detective books do you read? Are there any of those books you would love to see made into a TV series? Here's to enjoying the many Poirot episodes to come. The like. I feel like this is a, a good opportunity to revisit something I said three seconds ago. I'm rewatching Elementary. <laughs> Elementary is really good. Elementary is surprisingly good. If you watched BBC Sherlock and thought, Elementary might well be the thing for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot better. It's very much more, you know, the, the US procedural drama type thing. And there are tropes that mean that perhaps the identity of a, a murderer at any given time is not um as much of a mystery yeah or sometimes <laughs> it relies on like a bit of a hail mary clue like mm. it has a few too many mysteries that rely a bit on like well this was a dead end but actually i found in the guy's wallet a picture of his roommate and his roommate's dad once released an album with phil collins and phil collins is in town right now let's talk to <laughs> phil collins what up what up phil it was this guy. You know what I mean? That sort of mystery where you couldn't possibly put it together yourself. That's not a real elementary plot, by the way. That, that was off <laughs> the top of my head. Um, but it could happen. Yeah, but uh, um, it does have that strength that And that episode find... we call some like Genesis and Revelations. <laughs> that you... Yes, yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but it does have the, the strength of US procedural dramas, which is that um they get to play out character things over quite a long period of time so they actually feel quite organic mm. um yes which is quite nice because you know on the flip side sometimes they can drag um occasionally that happens with elementary uh in like i think season five sort of struggled a bit with it but um but generally in in you know the 
seasons that I'm rewatching, I'm sort of struck again by the fact that, you know, Sherlock and Watson's relationship does undergo these little changes and, you know, they, they build into sort of seismic shifts or, you know, you get to, for example, a season finale and you sort of, you have that sense of looking back and going, oh, we've come a long way over the season without yeah. me realising. It's obviously, it's a, it's a much, there's much more of it than there is of, um, and to be honest, BBC Sherlock isn't necessarily the best comparison because it's, it is far more like long running US sort of mystery shows like Dexter or any of the. Or the X-Files or well, the X-Files. Well, even so, I mean, X-Files is not a bad comparison. Yeah. You know, there's a pair of detectives that have a bit of a will they won't they relationship and, uh, constantly being attacked by bees. <laughs> Sherlock's friends with bees. Anyway, um, but yeah, so there's that. Um, I recently, uh, went on a big audio book binge, um, for various reasons. And, uh, I, for one, I got back into needlecraft and I find it easy to have a podcast on or an audio book or something. Um, and so I've re-listened to all of the um, novel-length Marples, um, and I also have been sort of gradually going back through the standalone um, mystery novels that Agatha Christie put out, so things like The Pale Horse or, you know. And sometimes you get surprises by um, things like, so in, in Poirot, if you know many of the the recurring characters ariadne oliver is one of my favorites she's played by zoe wanamaker in the tv series in the itv tv series and um she's essentially a mystery author who is permanently furious at her most famous creation uh i think his name's sven yeah um and you know you you get the impression that she's kind of you know obviously a stand-in for christy and her sort of you know over the top frustrations with perhaps poirot uh you know and it's it's kind of a really fun thing mm. um but i in uh yeah, in the in the one that I'm currently re-listening to, she crops up, and the first time that happened, that was a real lovely surprise because it was yeah. like, "Oh, you're here!" <laughs> and and um, Christie's novels do actually have uh, a certain amount of that cross pollination. You know, it's quite it's quite nice to sort of have. Oh, okay, you're here, are you? Yeah, in the Christie verse. Yeah, there is a sense of a Christie verse, so there is, you know, there is that. Um, and you know, I've sort of dabbled with um, with both more modern and also sort of more, I guess, light-hearted um, murder mysteries and things. There's like um, I can't remember what it is, but there's like um, you know, a quite light-hearted baking-themed murder mystery thing, um, like really light-hearted, uh, and that is. I, I didn't really quite get on with that, but my sister was really into them. So I borrowed the books, you know, when I was, you know, couldn't sleep. Not pie in the sky. No, but that was amazing. Um, and there's also, uh, I, I used to read, um, uh, Agatha Raisin books and, you know, things like that. So I, I do kind of experiment, but I do find myself coming back to Christy just because I really like her, um, economy of prose and how she can kind of paint a really like deliciously and um mundanely damning 
com- comedy image of someone, like in just a few words, you know, she can really sum up that sort of, you know, the, the, the officious church warden or the, yeah. you know, the, the meddling local, uh, you know, jerk teenager or, or yeah, the, the clueless, the starving clergyman. artist living in the garage who's almost, he's definitely having an affair with somebody's wife. Yeah, well, we're, we're just, um, listening I was to, this. uh, uh Murder, Murder at the Vicarage. And, um, I really love the, so the narrator, uh, he, he's a clergyman who is, he's very sweet, but you get the feeling that he's only just realizing the, the place that he lives in has any humans in it. You know, he's, he's got so used to, you know, being in his own head and whatever. And his wife, Griselda, is a lot younger than him. And there's that amazing bit where he's like, I just, uh, you know, I don't think clergymen ought to be married. But, you know, I don't know why I found myself proposing to this incredibly beautiful, very young woman within right, 24 hours of <laughs> it's meeting almost, her. It's, it's almost, a mystery it's, to me. It's amazing because it's, 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 it's basically... You know, I I don't know why I married her. She's half my age and too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and it's just she she does things like I would that. Say, or... So we've been listening. Yeah, we've been listening to the Richard E. Grant narrated audiobook of Murder in the Vicarage, and honest to God, I think the first chapter of that book by itself has none of the mystery in it, mm. but it has like almost all of um, Christie's amazing character writing, and also the most fabulous ending to a chapter. Yeah. Um, but only because of an actual anachronism in terms of how a particular word is used. But it is phenomenal <laughs> because the ending of the chapter is, uh, what's the name of, is it, what was the name of the, uh, his, the vicar's young wife? Griselda. Griselda. Yeah. It is one of those. Like she basically says something like, well, if you're not going to talk to me, I should have an affair. And then she left through the window. <laughs> and what, what they mean is the sort of the French window, the sort of, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the, end, the, the outer glass. An exit to the garden. Yeah, but like it the does, patio doors, basically. It does make her sound like some kind of fabulous kind of Ace Rimmer type kind <laughs> of swashbuckler. It's incredible. Yeah, yes. That's always good. Basically, uh, Agatha Christie's good is the point we're landing on here. Well, it's, it, she is, but then occasionally, because I've been listening to some of the Marples and they are toe-curlingly uncomfortable to listen to at points. And it's like... Right, yeah. Uh, the, um, oh, you know, the, the, I think it might be called Murder in the Caribbean, but it, or right. Caribbean Murder, but it's, it, mm, there are, there are parts of that that I was just like, I, this yeah. is not cool. Yeah, indeed. It's, so. we can, yeah, we can sort of laugh at and enjoy the kind of British vicarage kind of controversy side of things. What was the one we listened to recently about the hot, hot vicar? Um, it wasn't a Christie. Oh, so yeah, that was, um, Nio Marsh, who is one of the, the four, I guess, queens of crime. Uh, yeah. Along with, I think it's, is it, uh, Allingham and, oh, uh, anyway, so, but, Naya Marsh is a, a New Zealand uh, author who has uh, Detective Allen is her mm. big sort of long running creation. And some of those books are amazing and genuinely enjoyable. And quite a lot of them really suffer after about a third of the way in. You know, they just sort of like 
Roderick is feels quite Mary Sue-ish, you know. He doesn't yeah. have quite enough foibles, and you know, it, it, he also just sort of has this habit of like re-interviewing people, and you're like, I'm bored now. <laughs> so, um, it, so those are a bit more hit and miss. Uh, the one that we were listening to was Overture to Death. Which Very good. Enjoyed, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I, I, I enjoyed it. it a lot. But I was going to, I was sort of hanging off the fact that it's, it's one of the reasons it's so enjoyable is because it's a picture of village life, which is probably funnier now than it was intended to be because a lot of the motivations of the characters involved. And sometimes. I think some, the, some. I yeah. think sometimes we're laughing at it rather than with it. But I think often, specifically with that one, mm. we are supposed to be laughing with it. Yeah. But I guess the point I was sort of orbiting around too slowly was that. It's, I feel comfortable kind of laughing at that stuff now because it feels so much of a relic of the past. Mm. And in that case, at no point really is the story ever punching down in a well, way I, that... I still the, feel... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, I, I also have that sense of because I go to church and I do sort of interact with a community that is a version of that. Like some of it rings true, but it's... Yeah. It feels more like someone who also had those experiences, you know, um, making fun of them in that sort of gentle, very familiar way rather than it being a product of a, a really shitty, <laughs> um, yeah. whole structural inequality and problem set. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, Nio Marsh's stuff is, um, can be really, good um it just yeah just maybe have a little look at the the best of lists and stuff because some of them are um i think there's a is it black tie murder or so? i anyway i quite like that one it's anything involving alan's family especially his son his son is the worst he's like the wesley crusher of the nio marshiverse <laughs> it's oh he's the most precocious little dork Pip doesn't like Wesley Crusher, by the way. That's the thing we need to establish. Nobody <laughs> likes Wesley Crusher, but that's... But Roderick sorry. Allen, or Roddy, <clears throat> I think is his, his worst. That's a big answer. Next comes from Phil, who writes, Great walloping howdies, Potters. Just wanted to state how much I'm loving Little Grey Cells. It's my favourite new podcast and has resulted in me diving into the TV series and the books to follow closely along on the journey. I wanted to throw in a theory about problem at sea. Could it be that the titular problem is a light mania that overtakes Poirot as he succumbs to his seasickness? <laughs> I posit that the majority of the episode is Poirot's little grey cells at work trying to distract him from his illness, rather than a sequence of experienced events, hence the absolutely bizarre conclusion. It's just a fever dream. <laughs> yeah. In an added note on problem at sea, I'm sure Pip knows this already, but just in case you didn't, the incredible line about Adeline being so alive is there in the book, along with Poirot's response, and my heart leapt when I read it. <laughs> oh, could I also request not beeping out the swearing? I love that you all speak so freely, with the Triangle Roads app being a particular highlight, so the recently introduced beep just knocks the flow out a little. No worries about keeping it as PG as possible, but if it does slip out, so to speak, a 12A rating isn't so bad. I won't tell Poirot, I promise. Thank you again for the consistently brilliant work across the whole Crate and Crowbar network. Yep, it's a network with the feel of a local pub. That's from Phil. So I would say, I think the first time the beep was semi-genuine, um, it's because so i actually don't swear much no. at all like in real life as well i just i'm just not really in the habit of you, it well you swear when you're genuinely angry you don't you don't mm. actually you don't um comedy swear i swear for any for any fucking reason 
um and so when it happened on the podcast especially because it sort of just slipped out and also I just I felt like Poirot or at least Miss Lemon would be very (laughs) very perturbed by it and so it sort of but we didn't want to obviously re-record that line so I just I think we we decided to try beeping it as a way of almost acknowledging that it's a slightly different tone yeah and then I uh in the subsequent episode where that occurred I did it again more because it was funny and it made what you actually said sound worse. <laughs> yes, never underestimate the power of trolling to yeah. be a reason so, for something. <laughs> I don't really plan for it to become a habit. The first time was semi-genuine, the second time was just me taking the piss out of it. So, <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, thank you very much for a nice email. Hey, Next Edward. one comes from Edward, who writes, Hi, CNC. Uh, here are some questions for the Little Grey Sales Questions episode. If it's not too late to send those in, it isn't. <laughs> it isn't uh, because we, were... we took a million years. Yeah, we were very late recording this. <laughs> I will say I sort of thought that anyone who complained about deadline stress was maybe over-egging it. And now I have come to the realisation to that they were under-egging it, if yeah. anything. If anything, there weren't enough eggs. <laughs> uh, do you think, Edward writes... The podcast will lose any of its silliness if the later seasons of Pyro are a bit more serious. I like the silliness humour it has now. There's quite a few questions here, so we should we should quick fire through them. For but yeah. sure. I think the uh, topics under discussion will, and it won't be quite so much a case of, you know, laughing at the episode's handling of things or the fact that plots just go nowhere and Poirot is, you know, playing with a plane for five minutes or something. Yeah. But, I can't imagine us staying on topic well enough or professionally enough that it will not descend into something at various points. And also, Chris has an absolutely serious adoration of wastrel younger sons in any aristocratic setting. I just, I love the useless ones. And so those... I mean, you will probably be able to make a very successful drinking game of the amount of times he tries to stick up for for some fool younger son who's sprawled on a sofa with his tire skew, holding a glass of whiskey and uh, complaining that even though he hated the person who's died, he couldn't possibly have done it because he's, what, what? Too confused, don't know. <laughs> you were always a little shit in school, Bevan, but you didn't do it, did you? That's the sort of thing I'd enjoy in these episodes. <laughs> That's the, like, yeah. So um, also it, sort of yeah. quavery voiced, uh, confrontations between, um, aristocratic British men, neither of whom did it, but both of whom looked like they'd done it. Also, Poro's own, um, peccadillos never get less you know they they only maybe just stop being you know attended to or played quite as overtly for laughs we're going to get ariadne oliver already mentioned she's going to be a big injection probably also we're going to get to enjoy the vast array of popular tv character actors that haven't really fully shown up yet yes like it's really it's on it's coming right like half the cast of Game of Thrones are on their way. Half the cast of Star Trek are on their way. Michael Fassbender. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, some in extremely young form, some in the sort of timeless vampire form. Michael Fassbender. Um, <laughs> uh, <and laughs> so, allegedly, yeah. I should stress. <laughs> it will change 
tone, but I don't think it will entirely lose that stuff no. because we have never managed to be entirely serious about anything. <laughs> uh, Edward's next question is sillier question. I really enjoyed hearing CNC play D and D. What do you think the Pyro Gang, Pyro Hastings, Miss Lemon, and maybe Jap would be like playing D and D? Oh God! So I was thinking about this. Pyro would be the worst rules lawyer. No, actually, I think he'd be. I yeah. so I think Hastings would be the DM. Really? Yeah. Yes, I do because I think Hastings is the type to slightly overinvest in planning for something that doesn't quite go right. I oh, I think Hastings. I think Hastings would plan without realizing it. The most railroady adventure ever. We're doing this, then we're doing that, then the party's going to go here, then we're going to do this, and then Paro would. Manic Pixie Dream Detective, the hell out of that. Figure out exactly what the plan Hastings' arc was immediately and ignore it. Um, Miss Lemon would just sort of follow along organizing things. Yes. Or asking why. Yeah. Or like consulting things in the rule book to figure out whether this was even allowed or not. And Hastings would have to contend with an unfamiliar emotion called frustration <laughs> as the thing he's made that was obviously the best because that's the thing he made sort of refuses to happen for reasons he doesn't quite understand and i think jap would just be the sort of okay well i'm going over here uh, let's go um, like I, I think, think but i think that poirot would realize that hastings had put effort into it so he would you know i think he'd rein it back in I think, if hastings ever seemed to be getting up yes right? i think he would play along but in a way that Pyro's ego would not permit him to not play along that sort of made Pyro in charge yeah if you know what i mean um I suspect, so I'm not sure about Jap because I, so one, I, my concern is that Jap would be the sort of player to be on their phone during the game, like not really fully present. Not, not that they have smartphones, but the equivalent of that. I think he wouldn't quite get it. Like he would never role play, but he would just go for it, you know? Like you sure? I think he'd be he's... quite straightforward, you know? He'd you... be like, well, I'm doing this, you know, but he, he, it wouldn't be for any character motivations. It would just be, I think he would take Hastings's plot at its word. And yeah. Do stuff. I think, I think he would probably get rules lawyered a lot by Miss Lemon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, I don't think he'd be distracted, but I also don't think he would question it. Yeah. And, um, yes, I think that's, that's right. Mm. Uh, finally, uh, Edward also notes the swearing thing. Uh, you're asking oh, if the podcast no. had unbleeped swearing in previous episodes. I'm pretty sure it did. I distinctly remember someone saying, fucking pink gin. <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think it was Triangle Roads. It will be. Yeah. Um, personally, I didn't mind it. Thanks. So yeah, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll get we, back to we swearing. Won't. I'm not going to bleep this bleep. episode. So there you go. <laughs> you already know that. A final question for season one has arrived. Oh, wow. It's from Zoe who writes, Hi, Chris and Pip. Hello. This <laughs> oh, Hello, says says the screen. <laughs> this may be a little too broad for the wrap-up pod, but I fancied a trip down memory lane. I remember vividly the act of checking out the very first pirate story I ever read, Dead Man's Folly, and being excited because there was a girl guide in it. I was one at the time. Aww. If I'm honest, I can't recall much about the story, but I do remember how I devoured it, and it led to a fascination with murder mysteries that's never really left me. What are your earliest Poirot slash Christie memories? I hope they're as fond as mine. Also, going well over the LGC boundaries that I flirted with so far, can I please recommend everyone try and watch the utterly superb BBC adaptation of And Then There Were None? Not Poirot, but Stella, regardless. 
Yeah, also it's got like Aidan Gillen and people in it as well. Also coming soon to an episode of Pyro in like season <laughs> seven, but yeah. Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of like known actors in there actually. Um, yeah, yeah, that was an interesting. It was, it was one of those very moody ones. We watched it with your mum. Do you we remember? did. Yes, we did. Yeah, I really liked it. I really <laughs> And liked I it. was finishing off all of the chocolates that no one else wanted in the, um, that really worked for me actually. Box. I think that worked for me because the, even though it has good, uh, you know, well-known actors in it, it's not quite as distracting with the um, sort of self-consciously theatrical cameos as Murder on the Orient Express with such a glittery cast is. Kind of, although I, um, this is going to possibly sound like a weird thing to find slightly off-putting, but there is a very specific strand of, you know, um, thriller or murder mystery adaptations which um has that very specific blue green slightly underwatery yeah the palette. Col- the colors of and the the, yeah. the sort of slightly oversaturated mood to everything you know it's it's um it, it's that sense of the heightened slightly maddening claustrophobic yeah thing that isn't peculiar to and then there were none um but it's a it, it's a thing that i have started to gravitate again uh, away from because yeah. it uh has been maybe overused mm. but that's that's a very personal thing because i have watched too many <laughs> yeah i think this is a good example of that effect used for its intended effect mm. but yeah i agree it's weird because there was going to be another Christie adaptation over Christmas, but um, it ended up being canned because of a uh, Me Too-related uh, scandal involving right. one of the people who was going to star in it, um, and they pulled it. And I was kind of interested to see how that would have gone down, but obviously understand why yeah. it didn't and possibly wouldn't have watched it otherwise anyway yeah. because of things um, so probably wouldn't actually yeah. the to the question though which is earliest Poirot slash Christie memories I genuinely don't know because of my previously mentioned <laughs> problems <laughs> um I, I think it was possibly Poirot sort of having taken up there's there's a particular story and thus episode where Poirot has sort of retired and taken up gardening and is now growing marrows and uh that uh, that's a specific kind of few seconds of footage that has stuck with me over the years it's just you know that sort of just a particular bit of a scene um Mm. that I remember I must have seen when I was quite young for it to have embedded itself yeah, I really don't know either. My my mum um loves mysteries and mystery shows of all sorts and I will have inhaled a lot of a lot of my ambient exposure to Pyro came in things she was watching in the living room mm. when I was growing up, but I really couldn't point to a first story at all, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like I think I read some of the short stories first and so it wouldn't even have been a murder mystery, it was probably like a missing dog or something, you know? Like you know, years and years ago, it would have been something that I was reading on the school bus or something, just yeah. dipping into as part of like a a broader collection. So, I think I remember I was put off because um, I think the first Christie that I was reading consciously, you know, having 
you know picked it up as a kind of mid-teen I guess um was one of the uh Tommy and Tuppence series that she did I hated it I really don't like that series of books like I don't like those characters and I have no interest in their lives uh or antics or mysteries and so it was weird because I just I really hated those and just put it straight back down again after about you know four chapters or something it was just like maybe it's just the adaptations are good or something you know it was, it was one of those weird snap judgments that you make so actually I will say um a murder my first murder mystery that I remember reading and loving it's not a Agatha Christie one I can't actually remember the author but it was called A Very Hot Water Bottle and it's just about you know a a mystery a a crime involving you know a a hot water bottle and I love that (laughs) I would really like to reread it and kind of hope that it holds up and isn't massively hate crimey or anything you know (laughs) you kind of need to be wary don't you with with anything you have fond memories of but unspecifically (laughs) you know in a kind of childhood nostalgia way you suddenly find out oh dear (laughs) well on that note that's all of the questions we've got (laughs) That's it for season one of Little Grey Cells. Oh, but we have teased the fact that there's so much more that's cool that's coming up, right? Yeah, that's true. Yes. <laughs> so we will get to that at some point. Yeah, hopefully we'll get back to recording more regularly now that we both don't have as many trips and disruptions coming up on the horizon. Yeah. That will be good, good. Mm. Otherwise, obviously, it's, it's way premature for people to write in for next season. Yes. But we can say thank you to our Patreon backers who obviously support this via the main Crate and Crowbar Patreon. Yeah. You can find details on patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. The other thing I would suggest is, um, so questions at Crate and Crowbar is our email address. And obviously, at, at a certain point, we will transition into episodes that are actually longer than, you know, would happily fit into a scene by scene dissection. Yeah. So obviously we're going to try and figure out how we're going to handle that in a way that, um, you know, makes sense to us. But, um, if there's anything that you specifically want to suggest, obviously we can't say that we'll, you know, take all, all of that on board or that, you know, it might just be not practical, but you know, we are open to suggestions and we do read all of the things. So, you know, while we figure that out, we're sort of in that flux state. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if there are any cool suggestions. Yeah. For how to handle those big episodes, for sure. Mm. Otherwise, Pip, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I'm at Philippa War, which is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R on that Twitter. And I'm on that Twitter at C Thurston, at C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. I'm also that on Instagram, which is actually where I'm more often Mm. found i don't really use twitter much no neither do i in terms of you know interacting or talking about things same actually yes i don't don't really look at twitter anymore but nonetheless it does exist (laughs) yes and that's all of the pyro we've got time for i believe we should sort out a theme tune for the next one so that we just jam something in at the end i will send some emails (laughs) awesome well thanks for listening yeah, thank you for sticking with us. And also, also, 
Thank you so much for like all of the nice emails and just like the nice comments and stuff. Yeah. It's been really, really lovely. So hopefully yes, we very can much continue so. to do more cool things. All right. Mm. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>